Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. Expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for May. Oh, let me do that again. Yeah. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Friday, May 29th, 2020. On today's episode, we're going to discuss what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is Slash Film Editor in Chief Peter Soretta. And joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And writers Y Trend Bowie. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello, folks. So, first of all, we are recording on this new Zencaster platform that we recorded last uh, episode on. So, everybody should be sounding like a lot more clear. We got a lot of good feedback on last uh, episode, but it's going to be interesting to see how this does with uh, you know the whole team in one room. Uh, but uh, and also, Ben is back. He was he was out last week, and now you are in a new recording location, which has a little bit of an echo. So yeah, hopefully it won't be too bad for people. Yeah, uh, but we, we will we will get that fixed in the future. But just to let you know, uh, you know that that will be fixed. He has just a little bit of an echo. Okay, let's get let's dive into it. Let's start off with what we've been doing, Chris. What have you been doing this week? Uh, yeah, I just used this opportunity to plug yet another new episode of 21st Century Spielberg. This is a uh, a bonus episode. Um, I've said this before, but I'll just say it again. I'm doing two episodes a month where the first episode is just me talking about the two movies. And then the second episode is me bringing on a guest to talk about those same two movies. So this is a bonus episode. Episode three will be out next month. Um, that one is on Munich and War of the Worlds. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that because those are two of my favorite uh, 21st century Spielberg film. So as always, please go listen to it. Thank you. Okay. Uh, let's move on to what we've been reading. Chris, what have you been reading this week? Uh, I read the butchering art, Joseph Lister's quest to transform the grisly world of Victorian medicine by Lindsay Fitzharris. And uh, this was great. This was a really fascinating read just about how Joseph Lister you know, he, he was one of the, the, the pioneers of doctors washing their hands and cleaning their instruments. And, uh, you know, the first half of this book 
is all about how horrible medicine was this time where doctors were just sticking their, their filthy hands into open wounds and they were using the same surgical instruments on multiple patients without cleaning them just because no one at the time believed in, they had no idea what germs were really. And they didn't want to, even when the theory started coming out, a lot of them just didn't want to accept it. They did. They just thought it was, it was hogwash basically. And Joseph Lister was, was the guy who was saying, Hey, there's a reason we're killing all our patients. It's because we're, we're filthy bums. And he slowly got people to turn around on uh, what they did, but it, it was a really great read. And, uh, it's not for the squeamish because, like I said, the the first half of the book is really grisly in going into detail of of how just terrible medicine was until Joseph Lister changed everything. But uh, I I blew through this in in like two days. It's it's a really easy read. I I really liked it. I I can't even imagine that. Like, how is how is it that there were so many smart people that like just didn't they refused to believe that that could be a possibility? And it wasn't even that long ago, really. You know, it's you know a few hundred years, but you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's it's you know it's like you know the blink of an eye. People, doctors, just had no real idea of of what they were doing. And a, a lot of the book focuses on in the early days of, of of medicine, you didn't even need a degree to be a doctor. You could just basically be like, I'm a doctor now. And the people would be like, all right, I accept that. <laughs> and, and, you know, thank God eventually things changed, but it's just fascinating at how clueless they were at the time. It's crazy to think about a wow. time when there was advice given by medical professionals and people blatantly ignored it in favor of doing whatever they wanted to do. I, I can't, I, <laughs> I can't imagine living in a time like that. Yes, thank God those days are over. Uh, okay, uh, let's move on to Ben, who is reading uh, one of my favorite recent comic book series. Yeah, I started reading Paper Girls, which is written by Brian K. Vaughn. Um, I got the, I think it's volume one, is like a paperback, um, what do you call it, Peter? A uh, Paperback? I, I, uh, You're looking for the word trade. Yeah, trade paperback. Thank you, Jacob. Uh, yeah, so it, it's basically like, you know, several issues. I'm not sure exactly how many, but this is really great. I think I remember either Jacob or Peter or both of you guys talking about this in the past. So I ordered it a long time ago, one of those conversations that after one of those conversations and, and finally got around to um, to checking this out. And it's a lot of fun. It's like, I mean, the Stranger Things comparison is right there because it's a, a bunch of, you know, 12 year old girls basically riding bikes around in a, a small suburban you know, suburban kind of town. Um, but it's, it doesn't really share much DNA with stranger things other than, you know, the, that core conceit of like this group of girls riding around on bikes. And then also a science fiction component that is heavily, you know, introduced in basically the first issue. So it's basically the story of these girls who are newspaper delivery girls who, uh, the morning after Halloween, their town has, a massive invasion of aliens like drop in and they are trying to figure out what the hell is going on. And they stumble into this story that would be, you know, the biggest story in the world. And it's sort of ironic because they're, they're paper delivery girls, but uh, it's great. I I really enjoyed the first volume. Like I said, I'm not sure exactly how many issues that is, but um, anybody else, Uh, Peter, how far into this thing have you gotten? Are you like all caught up or how does it work? (sighs) I think I'm like two or three trades in, so I'm not that much further than you, honestly. I've been kind of far behind on 
my comic book reading. Uh, Jacob, are are you further cut up? Uh, yeah, the series ended with issue 30. It was a planned ending, not a cancellation. Uh, it ends really well. Uh, the series goes places. It, it, um, it, it goes to such sci-fi extremes that it becomes impossible to imagine ever being a TV series or a or, or a movie. Uh, Brian Gavon and artist Cliff Chang have uh, really do some really things I've never seen before in a comic. And I know Gavon in particular talks about when he writes comics, he tries to write comics that are or stories that can only be told in that medium and can only uh, exist as a comic book. And to make it, the idea of an adaptation seem impossible, and Paper Girls really does go in that direction. Uh, uh, if you enjoyed it, Ben, it may be more cost efficient to go with the hardcovers because it's now collected into a, a series of hardcovers. Like there's uh, each one of those collecting ten issues each, and ultimately it'll be cheaper to go with those and or just beautiful books. Oh, good call. Okay, yeah, I'll, I'll definitely do that. Very cool, and that's Paper Girls, and that's from what Image Comics, I think. Yeah, it's Image. Yep. Yeah. Okay, let's move on to what we've been watching. I haven't been watching that much this week, but I did catch up on The Dark Side of the Ring. This is the documentary series that's on Vice TV, which is not something my cable network has, but you can download the Vice app or you can go onto the Vice website, and I think they give you two hours of credits to watch their programming every month. I think maybe week and a month. I think it's month. Uh, so if, if you don't have vice, you could check this out. I honestly think that this is probably one of the best documentary series on television that no one's watching. This is from Jason Eisner. I've talked about this in the past. Uh, he did Trevenge and uh, which is a great uh, short film about uh, trees, sentient trees coming to life during Christmas and killing people. And also uh, Hobo with a shotgun, which I didn't enjoy as much, but he's a longtime fan of pro wrestling. And this series is basically him shedding a light at the dark side of this business, which is kind of this very insular business where like if you're into it and you're following it, you know about all these like very interesting stories, but like it's very much this bubble that these stories don't are not able to echo out into the larger world or they rarely do. And uh, this season, the second season uh, just finished and it has a lot bigger of a budget. seems like it has, like the first season, which dealt with some more obscure stuff, uh, got them the favor of like some big wrestlers to come out and talk about this and, and participate. Uh, I've talked about that, like Chris Jericho's involved. Uh, this season uh, has an episode on Owen Hart who is of the famous Canadian Hart family. He is a family of pro wrestlers that I think there's dozens of them. <laughs> and, um, you know, Bret Hart being probably the most famous. And Owen was, uh, by all accounts, like one of the best and nicest people in the business of pro wrestling. And he was this wrestler at late in his career. He played this guy named the Gobbledygooker who was making fun of Sting in WCW, who at the time was kind of doing this crow thing where he would come down from the from the rafters like uh be lower down into the ring and uh the gobble uh, and basically uh owen hart did um d- during a live pay-per-view he was t- to be lower down into the ring and instead the the thing broke and he just came tumbling down into the ring died upon impact and uh th- this is like the story of, of that whole thing and how it, it, I mean, it, it certainly looks like WWE was negligent in hiring a 
cheaper company to do the rigging and uh you you get to hear from his wife and his you know kids and it's like a heartbreaking story um but i remember watching that uh pay-per-view because i was into pro wrestling at the time when this this was out and watching it and it was crazy because like it happened I think they were showing a promo, which is where people are like being interviewed backstage and it happened. They they cut back to the ring, but they weren't able to cut back to the ring because they're, you know, Owen Hart was bloody. You know, he had fallen from the rafters. I think he hit one of the the posts on the side of the ring and then fell into the ring and there's blood everywhere. Uh, So they couldn't show the ring. So they were just showing the crowd and I don't know. It was crazy. Um, But this tells the whole story of of that. I also watched a, a, a episode on New Jack, who is one of the most notorious wrestlers in extreme championship wrestling, ECW. And uh, when when I was a kid, I used to go to uh, this place in Revere that it, it was a dog track because my dad would go uh, bet on the dog races and they had a space there that I think was for functions and stuff. But ECW would rent out the space to have these small pro wrestling events and ECW was known as being one of the more like hardcore, like they would bleed. They would really hit each other with objects and stuff like that. And new Jack was the guy that took it to the next level. And uh, there was a guy like his opponent that night at this uh, event, which I didn't go to is the one event in revere that I did not go to uh, that ECW did. Um, He was supposed to fight someone who, felt ill or didn't show up or something like that and there was a guy there named mass transit there that that was his pro wrestling name and it turned out he was an underage kid who was claiming that he was like 21 years old and uh had some wrestling experience and they let him fight new jack and new jack basically just like cut him up it like destroyed this guy's life uh it was like turned into this assault case um, I don't know. Anyways, I, I know I'm not making Dark Side of the Ring sound that appealing because <laughs> it's all these like horrible stories, but uh, it's I don't know. It's really well done. I, I can't say enough good things about Dark Side of the Ring. So if, if you if you're at all interested in like seeing that dark side of pro wrestling, I would say definitely uh, ch- check it out. It's on Vice. And um I've been watching, of course, Disney Gower, The Mandalorian, which is probably the worst title of any of the Disney Plus titles. But it's it's one of the best shows that they have currently on there. And this is showing you behind the scenes of The Mandalorian. The last episode or last week's episode uh, showed showcased the technology, the whole stagecraft technology that basically they are filming against a, a room that's filled with this high resolution LCD screen or OLED screen. And it, it, all the backgrounds of, of that show or most of the backgrounds, it seems like 75% of the backgrounds of that show is actually like rendered in real time on that screen. And it looks like it's because the the camera is tracked in this environment. It, it changes based on the view. It's called parallax. And I, I suggest, I don't care if you don't like Mandalorian, um, you need to see this episode like it it really this is a glimpse into like the future of how things are going to be filmed and especially in a day where we're coming you know (laughs) we're in this pandemic and hopefully someday going to be coming out of this pandemic 
Um, I'm guessing that we're not going to be traveling as much to film things. And I'm guessing that like, it'll be much easier to, you know, limit the amount of people that are on set. And I'm guessing stagecraft technology is going to allow that. And, uh, and also in the episode that hits today, it's all about practical effects, which there's actually surprisingly not as much of in, in the show, but you get, it's, it's really a, a spotlight for baby Yoda and the, the puppeteering effects of that, which I was shocked to see, like, I assumed more of Baby Yoda was CG than it was. And seeing the puppeteers actually puppeting him on set, it's it's clear to me that like it like they used a lot of the puppet and it, it's pretty incredible work. Um so I'd I would highly recommend everybody check out uh Disney Gallery, The Mandalorian. Brad, I know you, you have been writing up the bits that have come out of this show on for the site. Uh, do, do you have anything yeah, the, uh, more to uh, say about the show? Two most recent episodes, like you said, I think they're two of the best ones so far. Uh, particularly the stuff with uh, the volume. It's it's so trippy to see it actually, you know, in like being worked on at the time because as they move the camera around, you see like the environment shifting on the walls, and it's kind of trippy, like you're on drugs or something. Um, and like Carl Weathers even talks about <laughs> how when they shot the scenes in the the lava river inside like the the entire environment and the screens around them is moving because it's simulating the boat moving through the lava and he said that it kind of made him feel weird at times because they're standing on it it feels like it's actually moving and like actually worried about falling into lava um so it's it's, it's crazy to see it actually working and there's even a story about how apparently there was a, a meeting on one of the sets one time when they had the walls set up and one of the elements in the background is like uh, smoke coming from like one of the ships or something and it looks so real that one of the crew members actually thought there was a fire happening on set so it's it's crazy technology <laughs> yeah what one of my favorite stories i think it was dave filoni was saying it was in uh, a scene that they're filming in the hangar and they were sitting in the middle of the hangar like playing a game pointing to like the elements in the background of this scene trying to guess which one is actually a practical piece of set and what was actually like you know just on the screen and failing miserably to be able to dissect which is which and that's so crazy to be there and to encounter that but um i don't know i i would highly recommend i i i know some of the other people on this podcast are not fans of the mandalorian but i would highly recommend checking out at least the last couple episodes they are like at as much a showcase of what the future of filmmaking is going to be like. Um, and yeah. So uh, I also watched solo, a star Wars story because this past week was the anniversary of when the, when that film came out and there's this whole movement, the make solo to happen uh, movement, which uh, I guess is kind of like, like, you know, release the Snyder cut, but in a way, like, I don't know. I can tell you this. I've said things like solo two is never going to happen. It's very unlikely. It's going to happen. I've never gotten death threats. I've never gotten people online, you know, sending me tweets about, you know, my physical look and insulting me and stuff like that. I, I've, uh, the people behind this make solo two happen, uh, group that is trying to kind of like swell, uh, star Wars fandom, to get, you know, Lucasfilm to continue the story. I don't think they necessarily need a 
movie to happen, like maybe a TV series or even to tell the story in the Obi-Wan series of, you know, what happened with Crimson Dawn or even an animated series. I I think they're just want to see the story continue in some way. And I, I just wanted to say a shout out to them because uh, not that all the people in the release of the Snyder Cut group is bad. I've I've talked to quite a few of them who are really good people, the people that have raised money for that suicide prevention uh, um, charity. Uh, but it's just, I don't know. I'm just proud of uh, after seeing so much venom and so many, so much divisiveness coming from the, uh, you know, star Wars fandom over the last couple of years. It, it's so great to see so much love coming out of this uh, make solo to happen group. And uh I don't know. I hope something happens. But uh, I, I rewatched Solo, a Star Wars story, which I had not seen since it came out in theaters. And uh, I don't know. It, th- this movie is a lot of fun. I, I, I know, like, you know, we get caught up in, like, the whole talk of how it was filmed and Ron Howard and, uh, you know, replacing uh, Lord Miller and all that stuff. But, and yes, this film does have some very cringeworthy moments of like, you know, how Hansel got his last name. But overall, I think it's a lot of fun. And there's a lot of great production and world building in this thing. I really had a lot of fun with Solo. I would I would like to see more of this story told in some way. So, yeah. Anyways, uh, that's all I've been watching. Um, Brad, so what have you been I watching? I haven't watched much either. I it's, it's been just kind of a relatively busy week, and so I just haven't taken a lot of time to watch things. But I did uh, binge some stuff over the weekend. And uh, one of the things that I got into after hearing so many people talk about how good it was, was Never Have I Ever. Um, this is a fantastic series. HT uh, talked about it before. And it's just exactly the kind of com- coming-of-age teen uh, you know, romance, uh, hormones, all that thing that I love. It's super funny, uh, incredibly sweet, has a lot of heart to it. Uh, I love all the characters on, on this show. Um, I, I like, I love when they, uh, they take a veer away from the main characters episode to do like a little side thing with one of the characters who, uh, is a big part of her life. Like her, um, the, the main characters like adversary in high school, and I just, I just love what they did with, with everybody. And I, just, I really hope the show gets picked up for a second season. If it hasn't already, I don't think I've seen that news yet. But it's, um, yeah, just a, a wonderful show. It's such a, a refreshing thing to see right now. It's uh, uplifting, you know, at a time when things are pretty shitty. And so if, you, if you're looking for something for, uh, to binge uh, quickly and take some of your time, Never Have I Ever is just awesome. I think pretty much everybody um, here something agrees that with you, wasn't so. all that awesome that I was kind of disappointed in uh, was the first season of Space Force, which uh, it's a big deal for Netflix. They've been really pushing it because it's Steve Carell's return to television comedy, and it reteams him with uh, The Office uh, co-creator and executive producer Greg Daniels, um, and it's just very inconsistent. Um, it has some really funny stuff in it, but it's not really sure what kind of show it wants to be. Sometimes it has some really good satire. Other times it's uh, very sitcom style goofy. Um, it, it feels like it easily could have been something like, you know, Veep, but in like a NASA kind of environment. But it never quite get to being as, as sharp or interesting. And there's some really big misfires with the subplots involving uh, Steve Carell's character's family. Um, Netflix has been keeping under wraps what 
uh, is going on with Lisa Kudrow's character because she plays his wife. Uh, and it's really weird and feels totally out of place in the show. Um, I won't say what it is because you find out what happens as the show goes along. Uh, the stuff involving his daughter, played by uh, Diane Silvers, is uh, just doesn't work for me. And it, it just distracts from the better parts of the show, um, which is when it sticks to like Space Force as the concept. But that even then, towards the end of the first season, the show feels like it's starting to get too big for itself. And like the concept is just such a large premise that it starts to lose track of the comedy. And yeah, I, it's just a, a real mixed bag that uh, didn't really work for me overall. I actually got a um, yeah. an email. What, what is this? Netflix, I think. And it was like filled with like Space Force merchandise. I've never seen that before where they yeah, like, I actually launched yeah, I got a show an email, and they're think, selling um, merchandise. Hot Topic is pushing it because they have a bunch of it. And honestly, if I wish that I liked the show more because the, the logo that they have for Space Force that are, that's on shirts and stuff like that uh, is really cool stuff. Like they have some really cool t-shirt concepts. But unfortunately, I just don't love the show enough to actually buy any of them. <laughs> It really is. Uh, my girlfriend well, and I watched Out, uh, what else have you uh, been watching? which is the latest adaptation of the Jane Austen novel. Um, and it's okay. <laughs> um, I, I Yeah, it's it's a little bit of a slow burn. Uh, <laughs> I think the performances are solid in it, and it has some really gorgeous cinematography and costume design. But it's just not, I don't know, as uh, lively or charming as I hoped it would be. And I just... Yeah, I don't know. I, I just feel like that it could have been a little little bit better. It's it's not terrible, but it's uh not not as good as I was hoping. I wouldn't well, call it a slow burn. I'm not really sure because I feel like this is one of the zippier uh, Jane Austen uh, adaptations. But <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's, it's a, like it's a I, of preference too. I generally, you know, like you know uh, period stuff like this, where, where it's like the romance with with a little bit of comedy you know and like i just i don't know it it, it, it it was only two hours but it felt like it was longer and and, and dragging for a little bit and so uh, like i said you know not terrible but i just i just wasn't super impressed with it okay uh jacob you've rewatched the lord of the rings trilogy yep i watched all three extended editions back to back over the weekend uh one day uh, limited breaks between them while I painted miniatures. It was very relaxing, actually, because uh, those movies hold up, and they hold up in a in a really remarkable, special way because there's nothing cynical about them. Uh, they feel uh, both groundbreaking and traditional. They're just really good stories told well, and I like how it manages to honor Tolkien while also clearly being you know, building on decades of what people brought to fantasy after him. They're adaptations of the books while being adaptations of the pop of pop culture fantasy uh, as it's evolved. And I don't know, I guess they're, they're very comforting films. They're, they're comfort food. They're, they're about good people doing good things and trying, you know, trying against the odds to defeat evil, which is very satisfying when done well. And it helps that Peter Jackson does not feel the need to wink at it or feel the need to, you know, um, try to inject unnecessary uh, nihilism into something that's by its very nature, um, the opposite of nihilism, which I feel like is what a lot of large movies do today, where it's movies are about, you know, bad people learning to be good people, which is the Iron Man arc, which I, which is fine. But also something really satisfying about, of the rings where you have frodo and sam and the other characters 
who are good folks who realize that if they don't do something, you know, uh, then evil triumphs. And that is when you look at a story that was written by a person who, you know, lived through two world wars, who saw generations of people have to uh, go overseas first in the war where, where people died needlessly a second war where people had something to actually fight for because otherwise the, the world was at stake. Uh, you see this echoed all throughout uh, the movie and in a way that feels really powerful. And once you realize that, you know, Peter Jackson himself is a World War One aficionado who opened a museum about it and made a documentary about it. Uh, that texture of it runs all the way through it, all the way to the, the final end of the film, which is so different from the books in a way that actually I think improves it. Where instead, in the books, spoiler alert for the fifty-seven, sorry, seventy-year-old book, uh, they return to the Shire and find Saruman's taking it over, <laughs> and it's his whole other final adventure. I prefer the ending where the hobbits return to the Shire and have a drink in a bar with each other and realize that no one else is going to understand what they've been through, uh, which is something that, you know, you hear a lot from veterans, a lot from people who've seen uh, and lived through horrible things. And to me, that's so much more powerful and effective. So I think that as an adaptation, it works as a piece of entertainment. It works uh, as a tech demo for, for what people will be doing with computer technology uh, in the 17 years since then it's where it works. I think they're about as close to perfect as films get. Uh, I mean, I think it's more consistent than star Wars, uh, at least the original trilogy. Uh, I think that uh, literally there's one joke I don't like. Otherwise, I think the entire thing sings top to bottom. It is it, uh, If I had to make a list of like perfect pieces of pop culture, anything, uh, Lord of the Rings films would, for me, rank higher than the books. It would be in some kind of top 10 list uh, of great accomplishments of the past 50 years. Uh, I think they're amazing and perfect. If you haven't rewatched them recently, uh, you have all the time in the world thanks to the current situation. So you should do it. So theatrical, oh, I was going to say theatrical or extended. Uh, extended. Uh, I think that the extended films, uh, while they are indeed longer, in some, in some cases much longer, it, they are still paced well. It's a really a testament to good editing because people will see like a long pace on a, or long running time in a film and, and assume it could be slow or long or boring. Uh, but Lord of the Rings, the, the stuff that's in there feels necessary. It doesn't, it doesn't, it's not draggy. It never slows the films down. The films maintain the same pace as theatrical, even as they go longer. And if you can binge the entire season of Ozark or Mad Men or whatever in one sitting, then there's no reason to spend 13 hours in Middle Earth. I just wanted to chime in and agree that the Lord of the Rings movies are way better than the books and that it's a miracle that they exist and that they just work so well as they do. And the books, as much as, as Jared Hogan just does such great work with creating this rich, magical world, they get caught up in that mythology so much. And uh, Peter Jackson just creates something so much more cinematic and so much more cohesive than um, the books originally were. So uh, I'm sorry, Tokenist. What are, what are the names for? I don't know. I'm sorry. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I, reading Tolkien, and you know, I, I hate to say this because he's um, he's genuinely one of the most important you know figures of twentieth uh, century uh, Western art. But he reading him is like reading the Bible. It's 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 really good information, but it's boring. <laughs> I just remember there's like like three whole pages where he just talks about trees. In was it Fellowship? It might have been. I think it was Fellowship, and I was like, God, this is boring. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm glad even you, Jacob, are admitting this because I couldn't make I, I couldn't get my way through 
Lord of the Rings. And I wanted to as a book, but I loved The Hobbit as a kid. By the way, why is The Hobbit book so much better than The Hobbit movies? It's the opposite. Mm-hmm. I would really, really recommend, um, goodness, I am blanking on her name, the YouTube uh, creator who uh, wrote that, who made that massive feature length essay about uh, the Hobbit trilogy and why Lindsay it failed. Ellis? Yes, thank you. Lindsay Ellis has an amazing, amazing, long, like multiple award nominated video essay that breaks down the failures of the Hobbit, both as a creative force and how it impacted the New Zealand film industry. And, and after watching it, I feel like I no longer never need to write or speak about the Hobbit films again, which is great because I don't ever want to because they're bad. <laughs> uh, but I, I just feel like Lord of the Rings is a work of a director who is all in, who realizes this is either going to change fundamentally who I am as a filmmaker and artist, or if not, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm hungry. It's, it's, Lord of the Rings is made by a hungry filmmaker, and the Hobbit films were made by a guy who's very comfortable and did not want to make those movies. And you can tell on every single frame, and it is heartbreaking. Yeah. Okay. What What else have you been watching, Jacob? Oh, good. Nothing is good. Um, <laughs> I did watch the first episode of ESPN's uh, new miniseries, Lance, which actually premiered at Sundance earlier this year uh, in, in like a single long cut. I think it's like uh, two, I think it's being played in like two, two hour episodes on ESPN. And this is sort of their follow up to the last dance, uh, them trying to, you know, push all the, all the years worth of 30 for 30 docs um, to make up a, a lack of sports. And Lance Armstrong, uh, as the name implies, oh, sorry, Lance, about Lance Armstrong, as the name implies. Uh, and it's interesting because it has him, the disgraced, you know, uh, cyclist you know, uh, who is, famously caught doping and had all of his tour de France wins stripped has him on camera uh, talking very openly about, you know, what happened. And the first five minutes is it really hooked me because he's speaking directly to the documentary filmmaker, like off camera. He is throughout the doc. He actually speaks to her directly, calls her by her first name and and tries to create conversations and connections. And he promises that he's going to tell the truth. Then it cuts to various sports writers and journalists saying, don't talking to the filmmaker also in talking head saying, don't let him deceive you. Don't let him manipulate you. He's going to try to reframe this and lie to you. So it ends up. So with that immediately in there, uh, the tension of the film is not just the retelling of the Lance Armstrong story, which is very detailed. I'm learning things I did not know about this, uh, about, how, about how broken cycling was before Lance Armstrong, about how it's, it's not that Lance Armstrong um, doped. Uh, it's that he, he's the one that got caught as opposed to like literally every other person was also doing it, which is kind of what tends to be his excuse throughout a lot of the doc. But the tension comes from uh, Lance Armstrong, ultimately sometimes coming off as a sympathetic figure. Uh, you know, he survived testicular cancer. He did a lot of good, like amazing work in that field to raise money for people. Uh, but also he's a cheater. He's, and he, he is a, he is not just, uh, doc goes in detail about how like even before the drugs he would illegally compete as a youth pretending to be older. Cause he, he was a cheater from the start, just in different ways. So knowing that he's a cheater and knowing that other people talking heads are warning the filmmaker to be careful around him and not to trust what he says makes for a tension that's really uncommon in any kind of sports doc where the dynamic between the director and the subject is present at all times because clearly he is trying to make sure the film is about him and the way he wants it to be about. And I'm really excited to see where where part two takes this because uh, part one ends with him on top of the world and we know the downfall is coming. And I'm really curious to see uh, where the dynamic of him being a fucking liar (laughs) liar continues. Uh, So that's Lance. I caught that on ESPN plus, uh, but it's playing on regular ESPN as well. 
Uh, and if you're, you know, it's not as triumphant as The Last Dance, but like Michael Jordan, Lance Armstrong shares some really sociopathic compulsions that he admits to. Like uh, Michael Jordan and him, both in their, in their docs, admit to creating fake rivalries in their heads to make sure they feel compelled to destroy somebody. Which <laughs> it's like, we make you realize, oh, Michael Jordan was one massive scandal away from being Lance Armstrong. They're both people who no one really wanted to be around because they're both such difficult assholes, but they were talented. Uh, that's Lance. Uh, yeah, I, re- else seen I, re- I recorded it, but I haven't watched it yet. Sounds like no. Nope. Okay. Uh, it, it's very good. Uh, for more comfort food sports stuff, uh, Titan Games is back. This is a Dwayne Johnson created and hosted uh, sports series where amateur athletes compete. Essentially, global guts. You remember that from Nickelodeon, both adults, <laughs> which I personally think it's a it's a lot of fun. It's very hokey. And Dwayne Johnson has put himself in the right role where he's not commentating, he's not judging. He's literally on the sidelines cheering on the contestants and like being the being there to hug them whether they win or lose. And it's all very silly, all very cheesy, uh, but it's really satisfying comfort food. So if if guts for adults sounds like your thing, Titan Games is back and it's it's big hunk of cheese that I happen to love. Uh all right, I watched uh, a movie that Chris talked about, I think, was it two weeks ago? Uh, forgive my Korean. Uh, Ganjim uh, Haunted Asylum. It's a found footage Korean horror movie. It is very spooky. I liked it a lot. It is definitely top tier uh, of the dumb people go into a haunted place with cameras and <laughs> have bad things happen to them. Uh, the first half is slow. second half is very scary. Uh, just announced the American remake, so we'll see where that goes, but... It's stream on Amazon, and I enjoyed it. It's a very spooky movie, like 84 minutes. Not, you know, pretty much if, if, if a movie's under 90 minutes uh, and it's not terrible, <laughs> I'm like, okay, I'll give this thing a shot. Uh, things that are terrible. Uh, the Jurassic Games. This was a, a late night uh, drunk option. This is literally a movie that tries to combine Jurassic Park with The Hunger Games, uh, <laughs> kind of shamelessly, uh, about convicts being put into a virtual reality world full of dinosaurs and monsters. And if they die in the game, they get lethal injection in real life. But the last person to survive uh, gets all their crimes um, uh, forgiven and get re- released back into society. And it's one of those cases where it's not like an asylum production where like it's clear, or like which, they make like Sharknado and stuff where like it seems deliberately bad. This is the kind of movie where it's shameless in its presentation with the Jurassic Park and Hunger Games thing. But also I, fe- I feel like deep down they were trying the dinosaurs are bad looking, but they aren't as bad as they should be. The screenplay is bad, but it's really trying to make a point about <laughs> certain things. The acting is bad, but the actors are trying, damn it. It's, it's my favorite kind of bad movie, which is a film that I genuinely think the people behind it were trying for something. And they fail spectacularly, uh, but it's also never boring. And I, I like that kind of bad movie. I, I like it when, I don't, I don't like cynically made bad movies. I like bad movies made by people who really actively, you know, uh, have something to say and this movie has something to say uh however poorly so that is a jurassic game streaming on amazon prime uh i sampled uh hbo max uh by watching a double feature of aquaman and critters don't know why aquaman and critters but i did uh aquaman i still like it i think it's a lot of fun uh, my wife uh is, is a blast to watch with because she simultaneously hates it and loves it she like provides a live commentary of everything she hates about it while like compulsively be watching it. So uh, I, I, I don't hate it like that, but I do think it's goofy and intentionally goofy. And I, I appreciate that. Uh, and Critters, it's a 1986 Gremlins ripoff, not as good as Gremlins, 
but charming enough. And all four Critters films are streaming on HBO Max now. So if you are like me and haven't seen them since childhood and want to see some practical monsters, you know, eat character actors, uh, Critters is now streaming. Okay, you mentioned HBO Max, and I think you're the first person on this podcast since the the launch of HBO Max. Like, what do you think of the layout and the whole service as a whole? Uh, the, the layout's a mess, Peter. It, it, getting around it is hard. The color choices make it impossible to see what you've highlighted when you want to, like, select an option. Uh, and the fact is all the news out about how, like, the library isn't what they promise with major films missing. I'm going to keep paying for it. It's the exact same price I was paying for HBO. Uh, like it's our HBO uh, now slash go whatever I had, and so it's that plus more. So even though the uh, also the HBO app was also a clunker when it came to navigating it, so I'm really hoping they uh, add the t- missing titles. I'm really hoping they fix up the UI. I hope they provide options for it to become navigable because right now it's not. And it's not that it's like unresponsive. It's that it's just impossible to see wh- where i'm going in it and that's a huge problem but yeah like for, for 15 bucks a month like i said for all hbo plus everything else there's no reason for me to like you know condemn it or drop it uh for this stuff because i was be paying the same amount for hbo anyway but i really hope that they uh take to heart the fact that no amount of snyder cuts can save the fact that right now uh it's lacking from basic ui uh functionality I'm surprised that you're saying the UI is so bad because I actually was enjoying how much of a change and how this looks like it's like something created by an editor of like a newspaper, you know, like with different layouts and different like it feels fresh and doesn't feel like the same tiles that we're used to from like Netflix and and HBO. And I I don't think I have the issue of seeing what's highlighted. I don't know. I'm using on Apple TV. I'm not sure if like. That's oh, different in whatever. I'm also slightly colorblind. Um, which, oh, okay. Which which does not excuse them because no, people, they they should yeah. have tested that for yeah. color, Ryan. Yeah. yeah. Certain certain colors I cannot see or, or cannot see well, and maybe that's the excuse here. But it also means that I have to like squint and guess for a lot of basic choices, and that's un- unacceptable <laughs> in, in an age where most video games now have a colorblind option if you need it. And thankfully, most of the time, I don't need that. Most of the time, I, I see fine. So the fact that yeah. this is a problem for somebody who is as mildly colorblind as me means that I think other people may have a bigger problem than that. I, I would email them. And while, while, while you're at it, tell them not to uh, change the aspect ratios. I also think a big yeah, problem sure. uh, that HBO Max has, too, is just that it's extremely difficult to find certain things. They're not highlighting enough on the front page. And, like... There's some stuff that I didn't find until I went like digging into all the different categories and stuff they have. And they really just need to do a better job of promoting a variety of things like Netflix does. Because um, I don't mind some of the, you know, aesthetic changes and things like that. But, you know, it should be easier to find the content that I want to watch or to find new things to watch. And on top of that, a more specific complaint, I guess, is that um, you have your watch list and you can add titles to it. But if you add a lot of titles to your watch list, with I, which I frequently do because I usually add things that I know that I want to watch later. And like whenever anything pops up that I know I want to watch at some point, I add it to the list. And the My List function on the app, at least through Apple TV, only goes so far through your list. You can't see the entire thing if you keep scrolling. Um, and so if you want to see your full list, you have to look through at HBO Max through your browser. So I think that's a, a problem. Has anybody else here tried out HBO Max? 
Sounds like question. that's a no. Does it does it um, automatically transition to the HBO Max app if you have HBO Go or HBO Now? I had HBO Now and it just you know updated and became HBO Max. But I've heard, depending on where you subscribe to HBO, that might not happen. Okay. Because certain cable companies and certain like if you got from AT and T, it might not happen. Like there's deals that it's complicated, but yeah, I it it depends on where you got it, where you got your HBO. Yeah, I got HBO through uh, iTunes actually, and in order to get Max, I had to cancel my uh, original HBO HBO Go uh, subscription in order to then re-sign up for HBO Max. So ah, was- see, I, I was subscribed through iTunes, but for HBO now. And that app just like upgraded to HBO Max. So, so for some reason, I guess HBO Go doesn't upgrade to HBO Max, but HBO Now does. If I'm incorrect, please email and correct me. But uh, I I know that. I think you're right. I think you're right. Because I checked my HBO Go app and it hadn't updated. So I was guessing that it was HBO Now and also depending on the whole cable issue. So um, I had to check back in with you guys, but uh, I was excited to see it. But then, you know, it didn't happen. So, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, I mean, they have like a whole, you know, well, obviously they have Studio Ghibli on there and they also have Crunchyroll, which I'm sure you're excited about. No, yeah, like this, the entire app is just catered towards me because it has Studio Ghibli, it has <laughs> Crunchyroll, it has all the Doctor Who seasons. So like it was made for me, except it's very expensive. So that's just the only thing. Yeah. I'm curious when Ben gets a chance to look at this because they have a whole Turner Classic Movie section, which is interesting because they have some like really cool classic films and then like... They'll have like Bowling for Columbine and Armageddon. Like, yeah. are, the, are are those movies that play on TCM? Um, I don't think regularly. But they're both uh, Criterion films, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I actually did. I I uh, downloaded the the app last night and messed around with it for just a few minutes. But I was very impressed, actually, with the amount of classic movies they had on there. Like, if you, I think, outside of the Criterion channel. Um, and maybe Amazon Prime, which has a lot of stuff, but talk about a, a terrible user interface. Like it's really difficult to find stuff on Amazon Prime Video. Um, yeah. But uh, I think aside from those two, this is probably your best bet. Like it has a ton of really great stuff, and not just like American movies, but like international cinema. And like I think Criterion Channel is is probably best for somebody like me who's trying to do like deep dives and fill in huge, huge gaps in my uh, cinema history and, and knowledge and all that kind of stuff. But for just like the average person to have access to all of those great things on right there in HBO max. I mean, that, that seems like a big win for, for cinema overall. It's just like, hopefully people will actually click and, and watch some of that stuff instead of just watching young Sheldon a billion times or whatever the hell. But but what do you think of like what should be considered a Turner Classic movie? Like I'm like looking at this list, they have What About Bob, and they have um. I, I mean, I'm not saying anything bad about What About Bob. I like What About Bob, but it, like, it, should there be a certain year range? Should there be a certain? I don't know. It just seems I know. weird. I, I guess maybe it's like a little dollops of things that people are familiar with, and in the hopes of luring them into that section. Because like Brad was saying, they're all sort of like everything seems to be cordoned off on HBO max. There's like all these different tiers of things. So maybe if, if people are clicking around and being like, Hey, I wonder what's going on in here. And they see, you know, three or four things that they recognize. Maybe they're more apt to click around in there. I'm sure they've run some internal numbers on all that. Yeah, I'm sure. 
Anyways, we'll we'll explore HBO Max. Has any anybody here seen like any of their new original shows? I know Brad, you already talked about Looney Tunes, but has anybody else seen any of like the Anna Kendrick show? No, no? not yet. No. Okay, <laughs> we'll report back in upcoming weeks. Uh, Chris, what have you been watching? Uh, I finished the Last Dance. Uh, I won't say much more about it because I already said pretty much everything I have to say. But I I will say again that. I find it really weird that I'm seeing a lot of people saying it's been edited to make Michael Jordan look good because I really don't get that from the the series. I mean, yes, he looks great while he's playing the game because everyone knows he, he's a legendary player, but the interviews really make it look like he's just, just insane. Like I said this last time, but he really just reminds me of Daniel Plainview in There Will Be Blood, especially that scene and there will be blood where he's eating in the restaurant with his son and those people come in and he just like picks a fight with them for literally no reason. And he's like, I'm going to come to your house at night and cut your throat. And the guy's like, what? Why? <laughs> that's how Michael Jordan acts in, in real life where he's just like this really competitive guy. And he wants no one else to win to the point where he just makes up fake fights so he can have a reason to beat people. But other than that, I, I loved it. Um, I'm actually rewatching it from the beginning now because my, I watched it on my own because I didn't think my wife would want to watch it, but she actually overheard some episodes I was watching and she wants to watch it now. So we're rewatching it from the beginning. So, uh, and uh, I think that tells you everything you need to know about this because both of us could care less about sports, but this is so well done that it just makes it very interesting. Uh, another thing I, I rewatched, uh, is Brooklyn Nine-Nine. We, we rewatched that from the very beginning because, you know, everything is awful and we're, we're looking for things that will cheer us up. And man, that show really, really holds up. It, it's, it's really interesting to rewatch it from the beginning because the first season, like the first four or five episodes are kind of shaky. And then out of nowhere, it suddenly becomes like the great show that we know it is. And, uh, it's it's just very funny and very the cast is so good um you know i i I love that entire cast and this rewatch really made me miss uh chelsea peretti on the show like i I, you know i get why she left because she had the least to do of the cast but i i feel like the show really uh lacks something she really brought to it and i you know it's, it's a shame that she she parted ways. Uh, what else? I, I rewatched Die Hard with a Vengeance, which is the best Die Hard sequel without uh, without question. It's, and it's not even close. And man, that I thought you were going to say it's the best Die Hard movie. And I was like, wow, what a bold statement. But no, yes, no. <laughs> but it's, <laughs> it's so much fun. And I, I, I you know, I, I, I'm not a New York person, but I, I just love how much of a New York movie that is and how it, it just portrays like, almost the whole city in a way. And it's, it's so well-made and the script is funny and Bruce Willis is actually trying something he doesn't do anymore. So uh, die hard with a vengeance. It rules. And then finally, I finally started watching uh, the, what we do in the shadows TV series, because like I said, we're looking for stuff to, to cheer us up and we finished Brooklyn nine, nine and I had heard nothing but good things about this. Um, we're only four episodes in, but I'm 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 loving it. I actually think I love it. I like it more than the movie, just because I, I like the characters a bit more than the show than I do in the movie. Which I, I remember when they announced the show, I was hesitant to even get on board with it because I, you know, what makes that movie work so well is that cast. But 
the cast they put together for the show is just as good, if not better. So uh, I'm really enjoying it so far. Okay, cool. Uh, what that's uh, what is? Where can we find what you do? What we do in the shadows on TV? That, I'm watching on on Hulu, but it, it's on FX. But it all both seasons are on Hulu, so that's where I'm watching it. Okay, uh, Ben, what have you been watching? So uh, my wife had never seen Double Indemnity, which is uh, one of my favorite film noir movies. So we rewatched that the other day. I think it came on Turner Classic Movies. I, I DVR'd it uh, sort of indiscriminately. So I don't remember exactly what channel it came on, but you might be able to find it there. Um, I searched HBO Max just a second ago and we were talking about it, hoping that it would be there and easy for people to find. But sadly, it is not. So uh, in any case, this movie came out in 1944. It is uh, directed by Billy Wilder and it stars Fred McMurray and Barbara Stanwyck. And it's really just like one of the best film noir movies ever made. I think that, you know, if you were to make a list, this would definitely be in the top five for anybody. And if it isn't, I would look at that list sideways because it has like everything great about film noir in it. It has a great femme fatale. It has a guy who's in over his head. It has, you know, people sort of being punished for morality and all of that, which was like a huge thing that, that uh, a lot of these movies did. Um, Edward G. Robinson is in it. Uh, he's a guy who, you know, is known mostly for like gangster movies and stuff. He actually plays a good guy in this one. Um, and uh, just the dialogue is so great. I mean, it's not quite like the thin man level in terms of like snappy back and forth kind of thing but it's it's up there it's it's good like i there's the scene early on between mcmurray and stanwick where uh he walks into her house and and he's supposed to be trying to sell her husband some some insurance i think car insurance and he just realizes that this woman is just like smoking hot and he starts coming on to her immediately but it's so like um not subtle but they they go back and forth in in a way that people would absolutely never do today like (laughs) in in the way that they sort of veil their language and it just seems like one of those movies that uh everybody in it is like a little bit smarter than than they should be um even the people who make terrible you know potentially fatal mistakes um it's just one of those movies that uh i don't know it's it's comforting to me even though some terrible things befall a lot of people in the movie but um yeah, I just I love the craft of it. I love the way it looks and, and the lighting and everything. It's just uh, such a great film noir. HJ, I think I, I heard you speak up there for a second. You're a big fan of this one, too. Oh, yeah, I love this movie. I just want to say Barbara Stanwyck is just amazing in this film, but Barbara Stanwyck's wig is not. <laughs> I'm not really sure what the, what their choice was with that wig. I think it, it just, I mean, it does kind of highlight the artifice of her character in a way that's interesting, but it just is very distracting for a lot of the film. Yeah, Uh, I'll have to go back and and do like a special wig watch of the movie and try to keep my eye on that the whole way through. Um, So I also finished Run, the uh, series that I believe is by um, Vicky Jones, and it starred uh, Donald Gleason and uh, Merritt Weaver. It's on HBO. Um, The show wrapped up its, its first season pretty recently i want to say like last weekend or maybe the weekend before and i i just got around to to finishing that off and um while i loved the show for uh, i don't know the majority of it i thought the ending and specifically like just the final minute the final seconds of the show was kind of awful like did anybody else watch this chris i know that you watched the first several episodes did you end up finishing the show i did and yeah i i've I've heard a lot of people say they, they were disappointed with the ending and it's, it's not the best ending, but 
the fact that they're they're planning for a second season took the edge off a little bit. Like if that were like the overall, oh, I didn't know that. Okay, yeah, like if that were like the overall ending, I'd be like, wow, this sucked. But um, there there are plans for a second season, so I'm not entirely against it. Um, but I liked or loved almost everything else before for the ending. So yeah, yeah. I know. Oh, oh really? I I'd heard like people loved the first three episodes and then like said it the show took like a sharp kind of turn I mean, it, it slowly becomes apparent that you know the two main characters are just terrible people and i think that caught a lot of people off guard because there's no like setup for that it just seems like you know all oh, these crazy people are in love and then as the show progresses it's like oh they're just really bad people and i didn't have a problem with that because you know that's believable people are awful but i know some people had problems with that yeah, I, I really loved almost every every part of it, like uh, all the way up to the very end. I'm, I'm, I had no idea that there was going to be a second season. So I, I was thinking this was the whole thing. And I just thought that was like such a, a way to drop the ball at the very, very end. But even still, I, I think it's sort of a it, it just to me, it sort of felt like they ran out of money or something like, really, that's it. That's how it ends. And I'm, I'm not going to spoil it, but it just seemed um, so you know, for for a show that felt so confident in what it was or what I, I thought it was um, for its first, whatever, six, seven episodes for it to just end that way. I, I was very taken aback by it in a, in a negative way. But um, I think there's a lot of great stuff in there, Peter, even beyond the first three episodes. So um, like there's this moment that Merritt Weaver has where she does this like primal scream of about like motherhood and like the expectations that society has of her and everything. And she is so, so good in the show. So um, yeah, I, I think it's definitely worth watching even if <laughs> the ending was disappointing, but um, hopefully season two will sort of uh, jump back up in quality uh, quickly and, and leave that, <laughs> that sour <note laughs> behind. So, so you guys recommended this to me like a few weeks ago on the water cooler. And I was like going to go watch it. And I, saw some people on my feed like talking about how it kind of like went downhill after the first few episodes. So I was like, Oh, I'll wait until, you know, the finale and see what people think of the season as a whole before, you know, diving in. And then I just saw so much of a venomous reaction to that final episode and, and the, whatever happens in the ending in particular, like it seemed like people felt like the show, like, killed their baby or something i don't know like it, it really felt like people were really upset with where the show went so i you, think you, i think what happened is people projected themselves onto these characters because everyone is so horny and people were like yes finally a show about horny people like me and then it was like by the way these people are terrible and everyone was like oh no i was rooting for them that's what i think happened but i could be wrong hmm. Maybe maybe I'll still give it a chance. I don't know. I I am. We we are at the point in this quarantine where I've run out of like all the stuff I wanted to watch. I've watched. So uh, maybe I'll give this a try. I was tempted to watch uh, the uh, Anna Kendrick show uh, Love Life that's on HBO Max, but I've also heard bad things about that. So I don't know what to watch. I don't know. Uh, well, something that I, I've been enjoying a little bit is uh, is Devs. I started watching that. Yes. And I know that, um, that Peter and Chris did like a, a spoiler episode about the ending of that, which I've not listened to yet. I'm, I'm saving that up for when I finish the show. But uh, I think I'm my wife and I are halfway through the first season. And I love the story of it. I'm not thrilled with the acting, although Nick Offerman, I have to say, is like tremendous in the show. And I, I don't know if you guys have talked about this or not, yeah. but... Um, Man, a lot. Of, just, a lot of people don't like the main characters acting. 
well, it seems like everybody but Nick Offerman to me is just like not even in the same playing field as him right now. So I, I don't know what it is, it, it, but everybody else is sort of like uh, on one level. And then Nick Offerman seems to be, you know, uh, towering above everybody else. And maybe it's just because his character is supposed to be, you know, this, this sort of like uh, tech guru badass guy. But just from an acting perspective, he he seems to have more of a character arc and and more of a uh, an emotional core and a backstory and stuff like that to sort of tap into and maybe the other characters don't have that so maybe I'm being unfair saying that but it just seems you know from the outside looking in just sort of like man I really wish everybody else in this show was was working on Nick Offerman's level but um I, I really like the the plot of it and I'm very intrigued by the mysteries and the stories and the the uh, technology and all that kind of stuff. So uh, I'm excited to to sort of finish that off, even though I'm I'm not thrilled with the <laughs> the acting overall. But uh, I also watched Ready or Not, which is a movie that I remember most of the people I think on this podcast really enjoying when it came out in 2019. Uh, this is a movie that was uh, I think it's directed by uh, a group called Radio Silence, like two guys that's sort of their their filmmaking nickname, and it stars uh, Samara Weaving. And she plays a bride who, on her wedding night, uh, becomes the subject of a, a hide-and-seek game where the family tries to kill <laughs> the bride. So um, it's a pretty ridiculous movie. Uh, I had some fun with it. I, I think the concept is actually um, a little bit better than the execution in this movie. Like, I, I found myself wishing that this movie was maybe 20 or 30% better than it, it ended up being. But um, I still think there's a lot to enjoy about this movie uh henry zerny it was really really fun to see him you know he he was so subdued in um sharp objects and you know i I remember him from like the first mission impossible movie and stuff like that but uh seeing him as sort of this like constantly swearing totally out of control patriarch of this family and uh annie mcdowell who hadn't, hadn't seen anything in a long time rolling around as this you know, his wife who is like constantly trying to put him in his place and stuff. I I thought uh, their dynamic was pretty fun. Um, And yeah, I mean, it has some good like, you know, kills and splatter horror and stuff like that, but it's, it's supposed to be a horror movie, but it's one of those movies that's more like a, I don't know, more like a thriller than a traditional horror movie, I would say. Chris, do you think it's a fair assessment? It's not really like a scary movie. I mean, I would definitely classify it as horror, but it's more of a a horror comedy is how I would classify it. Yeah, that's probably fair. Uh, So that's Ready or Not. It's available on uh, HBO Max or HBO right now. And then another, uh, this is actually an HBO film uh, that I watched was Bad Education, which I think played at some film festivals last year and then came out... um, Uh, on HBO uh, about a month ago. And this is the movie that stars Hugh Jackman and Allison Janney. Um, Geraldine Viswanathan, I believe is how you pronounce the, the young uh, female leads uh, name. And she was tremendous. She's this, she plays this reporter at a Long Island high school who basically gets like, um, uh, I don't know, like uh, she is, is assigned a puff piece about a, a bridge that the the school board is looking to build at her high school and the the superintendent of schools played by Hugh Jackman basically encourages her to dig deeper into the story and that ends up being his undoing because there's this it's all based on a true story but uh him and and the woman played by um, Allison Janney are stealing like 
a lot of money from the taxpayers and the school district funds and all that kind of stuff. So it's basically about the unraveling of all of that. Uh, it's directed by Corey Finley. And uh, I had a lot of fun with this movie. I, I think it's, it's, you know, one of the better movies I've seen, one of the better 2020 movies that I've seen this year so far. So I know there aren't a ton of options to choose from <laughs> on that front, but uh, I, I really enjoyed Bad Education. So um, Hugh Jackman gives a really, really, really solid performance. One of the best things I've seen him do in a long time. So um, if you're a Jackman fan, uh, even outside of his X-Men stuff, uh, definitely put this one on your list of things to check out. Yeah, I might have to check this out. Okay, HT, what have you been watching? I watched The High Note, which is a new uh, workplace dramedy starring Dakota Johnson and Tracy Ellis Ross that uh, I wrote a review for the site for and is now available on uh, digital um, and video on demand. And uh, it's directed by Nisha Ganatra, uh, who directed um, Late Night. And I had really, really enjoyed Late Night. I was pleasantly surprised by it, actually, because I, I think I popped it on um, when I was on a plane and kind of expected it to be sort of... Um, a more fluffy rom-com, but I was uh, really, I, I really enjoyed its depiction of this uh, complex female dynamic at the center played by Mindy Kaling and Emma Thompson. Uh, Emma Thompson, and uh, it was written by Mindy Kaling, and uh, Nisha Ganatra kind of gave it uh, more depth than I expected this that kind of movie to, to be. So I had sort of high expectations going into the high note. It kind of um, repeated somewhat some of the same dynamics. It has a an older sort of female mentee and a young, uh, ambitious woman, and their unlikely friendship and how they both uh, change and um, help each other, but uh, set in the music industry this time instead of the late night world. And it's yeah, it's fine. I I really I really wish I had focused more on the uh, core relationship between Dakota Johnson's character and Tracy Ellis's Ross Ellis Ross's character. Um, Tracy Ellis Ross plays this um, glamorous diva who is starting to become past her prime. Is playing a lot of just uh, re 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 um replays of her biggest hits and is basically being offered a Vegas residency but wants to continue making music but is you know not considered as marketable now that she's past her 40s and Dakota Johnson is her young assistant who uh, dreams of being her music producer and uh, there is a really interesting sort of Devil Wears Prada dynamic at the beginning but it kind of veers off and becomes more of Dakota's movie and how she kind of starts to try to be, become a music producer and has strikes of a romance with uh, Kelvin Harrison Jr.'s character. It is a little bit um, disjointed and uh, kind of falls apart, kind of loses the plot halfway through. Uh, the performances are good, though. I really enjoy um, Dakota. Uh, Tracy Ellis Ross is fantastic. She just gives us kind of sad and dejected performance but is also incredibly funny and cutting uh so she's just fantastic in this role and of course um of her mother being diana ross there's a lot of sort of that leading into her performance too but it's not just her playing diana ross which is really uh sweet really nice to see um and dakota johnson uh kind of at first i was really unsure about her performance because she she's so subdued and kind of art house usually and this is a bit more on the broader comedy side but she gives a really funny and kind of grounded awkward performance that I enjoyed and kind of touched on some of her more 
subtly funny performances in the Fifty Shades of Grey uh, movies, which I only saw the first one, but I do remember her being a, a, exceptionally funny in those movies. Um, I think kind of secretly undermining the eroticism of the films a little bit. And I think she brings some of that here into the high note. Um, but yeah, I just, um, I think the the script, which was written by Flora Grayson, uh, wasn't as strong as, as say, like late night, Mindy Kaling's script was for uh, late night. And I think that's where some of this falters, despite being almost an exact um, beat, for, beat for beat of the premise. Um, but I will say, Kevin Harrison Jr. is really, really, really good in this. I was, it was just so exciting to see him not playing a beleaguered teen or oppressed teen in some way. He, you might know him from uh, It Comes a Night. He was really great in uh, uh, Loose and Waves too, which I didn't see, but he's always playing someone who's incredibly put upon or oppressed or being just, um, just having a hard life in some way. And it was so just, refreshing to see him enjoying himself and being charismatic and being able to sing and show off how uh, much of a star he is. If anything, I think that this is a great showcase just for how much of a star he should be. And I really want him to, to succeed and like break out in Hollywood. I think he's great in this movie. So yeah, the high note, kind of disappointing, but uh, saved by the performances. And um, I also watched The Trip to Greece, which is the la- fourth and final trip film in the trip franchise i uh did a marathon of the trip films after um (laughs) convincing my mom to watch them because she first loves food and she loves movies and a lot of her favorite movies are food movies like she (laughs) her favorite movies are like tempopo or eat drink um man woman and those kind of films so i was like well you love food and the trip is basically just two british comedians improvising and eating food the entire time so we did a marathon of the movies and Leading up to the trip to Greece, um, all of them are only available to rent um, or to buy digitally, so they're not on any streaming services. Um, they they used to be on Netflix. I remember watching the trip a lot when it was on Netflix and just kind of putting it on the background. It's a movie that I, I really, really adore, and it's just so easy to watch and to fall into. And watching them all back to back, they are, you know, they're the same old thing over and over again it's uh steve coogan and rob bryden getting together to take a trip across uh some european country for a fiction for a fictional um uh journalist like food review uh assignment and they play fictionalized versions of themselves and just kind of riff and do impressions for roughly two hours and it's just so fun and so funny and i feel like a lot of my own cultural language has been shaped by some of these films especially just like i will quote a lot quote their michael kane impressions endlessly and i have not actually seen the original um uh oh what's the movie uh italian job but i, I do know michael kane's a line from it because of this film so um watching them all back to back was really great and uh leading up to the trip to greece which is definitely the most melancholic and sad ones of the bunch it actually kind of shakes up the formula quite a bit because you notice watching them back to back that they all kind of start off and end in the same way um mostly ending with steve coogan being sad about his fame and that kind of thing um you end up being sad for steve Steve coogan a lot for in these films but the trip to greece uh shakes the formula a little bit and it feels very much like they are bidding goodbye to this franchise and that they are just kind of 
almost more settled in their personas and in themselves. Uh, it's really interesting to watch the, the series all together and see it as uh, Michael Winterbottom, who's the director, his sort of uh, examination of aging and fame and um, Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon doing the same. Um, I, I just, I, I really think it's, um, it's so interesting that this kind of uh, joke jokey premise became almost like the comedic version of the before trilogy and uh it's <laughs> it's just as watchable it's just so fun and i just i love these films so much and I'm, i am really sad that they're over but the trip to, to greece is a really um bittersweet and perfect ending to the the series i haven't seen any of these uh but i, I was under the impression that they were it was a tv series it's was it, it a tv off, series it started off as a tv series for bbc and then Michael Winterbottom edited them into feature-length films. So ah. they are – I have only seen the feature films. I'm actually interested to see the TV series, but I don't think they're available to watch in the U.S. Um, it's um, – or at least they're difficult to find. I'm, I'd be interested to do that. But, yeah, I, it's um, it started off as a series, TV series and then kind of became a series of films. Huh. I might have to give this a try. This sounds like it might be up my alley. But uh, okay, let's move into what we've been eating. Uh, last week, I, ta- I talked about how I've recently gone back on a diet. I'm doing yoga. It's kicking my butt. I'm losing weight. Everything's great. Uh, I've been um, cutting my calories and I'm um, every morning eating fruit and yogurt, uh, like some fresh fruit, some like bananas and strawberries and berries mixed with uh, some plain uh, non-fat <laughs> yogurt. And I can't tell you how much having this like little bowl of yogurt and fruit every morning is like making me feel so refreshed and ready to start my day. Like I know it's not completely healthy because there's a lot of sugar there, but um, I don't know. It, it really does make me feel like I'm uh, on the right track and uh, to derail that right track. We went uh, shopping the other day and at, at Target, I saw this thing from DiGiorno who make these frozen pizzas uh, they made a pizza that has a croissant crust, and uh, we had to get it. So we had it as our, our one cheat meal of the week. And um, okay, so this is a frozen pizza, and the crust looks like it's a croissant on the photo. I will say when you actually make it, it looks nothing like the photo. It looks more like a regular pizza, but it... Uh, <laughs> And uh, th- we found this at Target. It, it like when you make it, it like the, for the whole pizza, I think it's like eighteen hundred calories. I split split this between me and Ketra, so we only had the nine hundred each. And um, it uh, it's so crunchy, so buttery. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Uh, for a frozen pizza, it was really good. Um, hoping Brad gets a chance to try this so that he can uh, also review it on the water cooler in a future episode. Yeah, I haven't got a chance to get to the store to seek it out yet, but hopefully I'll be able to track one down. Yeah, uh, look at Target though; that's where we found it. And uh, okay, moving on to what we've been playing, Jacob. What have you been playing? Sorry, one second. I turned the fan back on because it was hot. Now I need to turn it back down. Okay. Okay. Tell me when you're ready. Okay. You, whenever you want to go. All right, three, two, one. Yeah, I started diving into Planet Coaster, which is a game that's a few years old now. And essentially, a few years ago, uh, a series of 
games came out where developers clearly said, if no one's going to make a good Roller Coaster Tycoon game, we're going to do it ourselves. Uh, and there's two games that came out, uh, Park Attack and Planet Coaster. And Park Attack is one that's more business management, you know, running a theme park, you know, count, uh, changing ticket prices, being a businessman. Uh, whereas Planet Coaster is very much a designer game, a sandbox game. And even though it has those park running elements, uh, it's really more about being able to meticulously build your own digital theme park and walk around it and ride the rides and uh, really create beautiful things. If you go online, the, there are people who are like creating exact recreations of, of Disneyland and of Cedar Point and or they're building completely original ones that are just uh, a sight to behold. And of course, these people who put hundreds of hours in this game and I'm kind of slamming my head against it. It is very, very tricky to play. It is uh not as much tricky as it is deep uh the, the basic tools you know to do things are just incredibly complex you click on one thing and it gives you you know 10 different options and 10 different sub menus and this leads to you being able to do like genuinely remarkable things in this game the way you can reshape land and create water uh it's the kind of game peter you would appreciate this where <laughs> i built a giant entrance hub hand built a castle to go on top of this hill uh, and then I installed lighting all around it. So when the, so when the day night cycle went through, it became night. You could see the tower. And then I was able to install bushes around the lights so that guests could guests or people watching over my shoulder <laughs> could not see where the lights were coming from. Uh, so it's the kind of game where not only do you create the lighting packages and special effect, effect packages for your for your um, for your cues and, and your rides, but you have the ability to hide them. And the game will judge you. Like it'll say, like the game will tell you, "Hey, your guests are bored in line. Find things." That, do stuff in your queue. So you, 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 you got to Disney up your queue. You got to put animatronics in there or put like storytelling stuff. And it's the kind of game where it's not just about like, you know, bottom line, create, you know, a profitable theme park, but like creating something that's aesthetically pleasing and the depth to which you can do it is really mind boggling. And I'm not so sure if I have the, the drive to really learn it, to really create the beautiful things people are doing. Uh, but as a tool for like, you know, creating your dream theme park, you know, whether it's logistically possible or not, my my inner goal is, is to try to stick to logistically possible just because I want to. Uh, it's it's a really cool thing. It's forty bucks on on PC and incredible soundtrack. Like I've been listening to the soundtrack uh, for over a year now. It, uh, it's beautiful, beautiful music. So uh, so even even if you don't have interest, any interest at all in um, wait, what what what's the soundtrack like? It's it's just like the most relaxing, inspiring, creativity fueling music I've heard in a long time. Uh, it, it kicks on while, while you're building theme parks. You're like, yeah, I can make theme parks. <laughs> and like I said, I, I, I have it, I guess, one of my go-to uh, sleep soundtracks. I, I've listened to that uh, hundreds of times before I go to sleep. Uh, so that alone, even no interest in the game, uh, the Planet Coaster soundtrack is really remarkable. You're really making me want to play this, but I, I am worried about the learning curve because I'm uh, all, already not great at video games. But the fact that you are good at video games and you still are not quite ready to learn all the ins and outs kind of worries me so. yeah it, there are a lot of, I, I tend to have youtube open while i play so i can do like oh how the hell do i do this so someone someone youtube has made a video <laughs> okay that brings us to the end of today's slash home daily you can find more of all of our work at slash home.com you can find this podcast on itunes google overcast spotify all the popular podcast apps, please feel free to send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at peter at slash home.com. 
and rate and review this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends, spread the word, and we will see you on Monday. Hey, Peter. I, I, I Jacob, I think this sounded a lot better with this new software. I think uh, people are going to enjoy like it actually sounds like I'm in the room with you. Oh, good. That means that people can hear better. The gargantuan book of insult, offense, and affrontery. Sharp retorts, reposts, cost equips, implied put downs. But Lewis A. Stafian. I've opened up the page 259. Dressed and undressed. HT, she dressed like lady. She dresses like a lady. Lady Godiva. Oh. If, if I was in the room with you, I could walk out, but I'm kind of stuck here. Uh, you're all for women, so I gotta I gotta reverse the sex in my brain. Okay, um, <laughs> Peter, Peter, he shows a lot of style, and the style shows a lot of woman. <laughs> Wait, did the original say man? I'm confused. Brad, the only thing holding up his dress is a city ordinance. Oof, I I mean, yeah, okay. <laughs> Chris, he wears such tight dresses the fellows in, in his office can hardly breathe. Mm, it's true <laughs> and ben that's a very cute dress he almost has on <laughs> oh boy wow. jacob is hitting on ben i'm gonna call Whoa. hr <laughs> okay bye everybody